This evening's talk is about the seamless circle of the parami of generosity. And we'll begin with some discussion about the paramis this evening, and, and then we'll look deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind. We'll also uh, look into uh, the other paramis as well to some degree. So what, what is a parami? Paramis are the accumulated forces of purity in the mind and the heart. Every moment that's clear of free of greed, hatred, and delusion has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our mind and heart. One of the root words of the Pali word, a Pali word, parami, conveys a sense of supreme quality. Paramita, the Sanskrit word, means going toward something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. Often the word parami or paramis are translated as the perfections. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed. And I'll just list them. The first is, and I'll list them in English and in Pali. The first is generosity, which is dana. The second is uh, virtue, or, uh, virtue, ethical behavior, sila in Pali. The third is renunciation, which is nekama in Pali. And the fourth is wisdom, panya. The next is energy, effort, virya. And the next is patience, kanti. Next is truthfulness, sakka. And the next is resolve or determination, which is aditana. Next is loving kindness, metta. And the last one is equanimity, upekka. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, 
energy, effort, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very powerful and result in many forms of happiness, contentment, and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated heart and mind. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities, these paramis in our lives, in our heart, in our mind, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. And I mention this because some people have that attitude about the paramis. This aspect of training the mind is an essential really powerful and necessary aspect of our practice towards in moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they are incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment, very much including the development and the blossoming of concentration. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, of the heart, of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, the purity of action, our way of being in the world. Conduct conduct in its everyday worldly sense and uh, uh, worldly aspects. And so these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second uh, basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, understanding, insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the deepest liberating kind. The second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of panya, wisdom, Patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are 
very much interrelated. And so bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself in its process is the practice and the process of purification. The path of practice that leads one toward liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and metta, loving-kindness, and all of the Brahma-vihara practices are called the path of purification. The development of the paramis organically or naturally occurs within the context of all of these and each of these practices. In light of the fact that you will soon be moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world, and considering our everyday life right here in this intensive retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's daily life here in retreat, and of course outside of retreat as well, can be quite helpful and quite fruitful. It can really be a potent aspect of our practice. Paramis, of course, are to be practiced and to be developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, and one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and the potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart, is that there's something to work towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So no greed, no hatred, no delusion which, of course, without a doubt, is of great benefit for everyone, oneself very much included. The word parami, used in relationship to a particular person or persons, refers to one who does wholesome deeds with a very pure, and very genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. And we move towards this little by little through our practice. As we practice the Dhamma, it's really quite okay and actually necessary to have a self-centered interest. This is a wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma in this way, as I think you all understand, 
there's no harm done in relationship to others or in relationship to oneself. Traditionally, the practice, the development and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So again, we'll look uh, deeply into this first parami, dana, of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind. And beginning with a story. Some years ago when I was uh, living at the Insight Meditation Society as the resident teacher for staff, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda temple, which isn't very far from IMS, and I'd go there to pay a visit to my friend, the very venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know his name, may know of him. Uh, His name, Maha, translates as great. Maha means great. And Gosananda translates as the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was uh, very fondly called, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside, the villages, and the refugee camps uh, during and after the Vietnam War. Maha died uh, some years ago uh, at approximately the age of 94 years old. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a really, truly unfettered mind and heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and great joy of teaching uh, a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, Uh, a sweet and very uh, deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we hadn't seen each other, we didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't uh, seen each other uh, for over a year. So I really didn't know if he'd remember me. Uh, Being such an old man, there were uh, things that he uh, didn't remember. So I recalled to him, uh, when we uh, met in his room, I recalled to him the last time we had met. And I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing. 
And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. And his response, very directly and very sweetly, he responded, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS, not very long after that uh, Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Gosananda, I visited uh, Venerable Mahagosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who actually, he used to call me mum. <laughs> and at one point I asked him during that particular visit why he called me mum, when in fact he was so much older than me. And he responded by saying that we have all been each other's mothers at some point, and so your mum. So that day, uh, mum and grandfather sat in his uh, the little dining room in his temple, and we drank tea, and we laughed a bit, and we, we talked a little history uh, about his life, and we talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked the Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable Mahagosananda's very favorite topic to talk about. Being, being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart and the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body and my whole being, and then on outward. An experience that would always continue on ongoing for a while after our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and uh, tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar to, for me to take back to all of the three-month yogis at IMS. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity that occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha directly out of his own experience offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a very recent story, a relatively recent story, regarding Venerable Mahagosananda, 
to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that in fact displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, but it also displays uh, virtue, uh, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular uh, telling of this tale is adapted uh, as told by Rafe Martin. It's said that many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit uh, to the small village of Amaravati in India and to offer an evening talk revealing the Dhamma. Well, the villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara. They decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through the village and then to cover it with fine cloth. In the forest just outside of this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness and physical beauty, intelligence and friendliness and kindness and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later life, later lifetime, became to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had just died a few years before this uh, story takes place, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It said that this young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, but neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too shall die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No, he thought. I will leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. He announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit, wearing clothes made of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. And within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in town. It's said that 
seated cross-legged. He rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all of the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dapankara is approaching the village? While Sumedha's heart leapt with joy, a Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Rare is it beyond all comprehending to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and mind, filled with light and filled with joy, repeating to himself over and over, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dapankara was approaching. It's said that Young Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great, soft, golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion, one in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down upon it, loosening and spreading his long matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, Like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I am determined. Despite all the difficulties and danger, I will never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at that very spot. And looking down, At Sumedha, he knew, this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, Monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs old age, sickness, death, 
and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he will receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. With renewed strength and energy, he will go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his efforts with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, <laughs> became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dupankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha Dupankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It's said that he rose up into the air again and returned to his forest retreat, where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. I think most of us usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process that clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity is a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer we give help, we receive. The seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisatta Sumedha so diligently and so deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. 
I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. My four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area and with a very big and bright smile on his face thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. I receive them with delight and with a heart felt, a heart full of gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had had admired my favorite bracelet. And I learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing some degree of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my bracelet uh, to this young woman for my birthday. (laughs) Though actually uh, feeling quite a bit like a a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration of doing this. And then finally deciding to do it. And when the time came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. At that point it really truly was a joy, though in the process of uh, getting there it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together for her to, to allow her to uh, sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, all of the conditions do come together. But one week before the retreat was to begin, she caused, to tell me, caused me to tell me that she'd given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand, he and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and he gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can accept or receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child's in the center of the circle. There are delicious... After, after, eating, uh, after eating and drinking her fill and 
exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And another voice, I'm cold. And then the child is led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of years ago, a number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving, that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the the conditions came together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully down the road, and each of them is holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering, every morning, taking in the power of the generous heart, so clearly present in this daily practice taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They just simply become a natural part of your life. And some words from the Buddha. If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, They would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not 
enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us will be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't easily available in this country, which at least in part is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life. And of course we we practice this every day, breakfast, lunch, and tea. In the retreat. <laughs> Nor do we in our regular life, most people, regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of culting a light, joyous, and generous heart. And again, to the contrary, uh, this retreat has been really quite special uh, and quite wonderful in this regard with the many meals that have been generously offered as dana for all of us. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations. To think and feel and project that this is who we are. In the light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things, 
underneath and beyond all of this training, all of this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. And uh, a poem regarding this uh, by Naomi Shihab Nye. And this was um, written in Colombia in 1978. And she calls it Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture there's a deep and quite a profound lack in this, or loss in this lack. The practice the development of the heart of generosity is a seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. And maybe 
even in this retreat or in some other retreat that you've sat, my spot in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room, my walking path, might not be yours, really. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, It can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, and equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a very powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, The greatest gift is the act of giving itself. And uh, a short section of a sutta from the Anguttara Nokaya, um, uh, the Dvejana Sutta, which translates as two people, the two people sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And we have done no admirable admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds to allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gautama, instruct us, Master Gautama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, a hundred and twenty years old. 
and you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. The world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There's what could be called beggarly giving, when, uh, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we give. It's still mine. <clears throat> How I <clears throat> first began giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet In this uh, kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. And then there's what can be called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of what's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, there's no giving. There's just this spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. Eighth-century Buddhist monk Shantideva wrote this. Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. (laughs) There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity will quite naturally blossom. South African uh, Desmond Tutu said this, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up 
in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you well know, we don't always live with the purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with yourself, to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of what you might have thoughts of as a a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and to come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion when, in fact, we may be acting out of fear of loss, fear of disapproval, or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which then in turn continues suffering in ourself and maybe in the other person as well. And we maybe, maybe, maybe are creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't have the feeling of a very simple okayness about being here meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a sense of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength of wholeness within us and this simple okayness. This must be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet fully healed, from the learned, from the conditioned 
feelings of lack. There may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourselves away or lose ourselves in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving or unskillful support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others and also a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, to respect, and to honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a really deep, true generosity develops and matures gradually. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. Looking at the practice of generosity just for a couple of moments from quite a different perspective, there's a practice that a uh, Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person um, often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be quite difficult for people uh, like this. They might not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. 
So, the practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly at all valuable, something like a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and you pass it back and forth, hand to hand, back and forth, until it gets easy, and maybe until you don't feel foolish. And then, going on from there, are the higher practices. If one is motivated, inclined to continue the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever those might be. And the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point in my long practice life, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here without all the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity, with unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, mindful presence in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life 
is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. And that this is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is really the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us, and we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So, closing the talk this evening with one more story. About mm, 35 years ago now, somewhere around there, my interest in Buddhism, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would uh, come to the area of Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one year I invited him to come and stay in my house, which was a very small, old, five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, only one of my sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old, uh, very old, very well-used small car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he is quite a big man, about six foot three at least, and very big boned. And he looked even bigger uh, uh, in his uh, cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like uh, one of those uh, cars in the circus that pulls into the center ring and the doors open and then people just keep pouring out. And one is totally amazed at how many people can fit into such a tiny little car. And as we watched, my son and I, uh, seven people emerged from this little car, and they were Wallace's helpers and members of his family. It turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this uh, 10-day period. And the thought uh, crossed my mind, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and to listen uh, to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 a.m. And then... At that point, it was time for dinner because no meals were allowed to be 
uh, taken uh, in the afternoon and, or the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits. How I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, my rhythm, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one of his family members uh, smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. People, as I mentioned, people slept all over the house, all everywhere. And the day would begin late in the morning. And with the late night sweat lodge ceremonies, 1 a.m. was dinner time. Every afternoon, the house was filled with 15 or 20 people uh, coming by to listen to Wallace uh, share teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there would be bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all sat together in a circle. Each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for our sharing our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in that It's in that that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside, watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie, playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house and we stood there in amazement. The seeming, seeming great expanse of our teeny tiny little house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it just seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, my son and I both felt tremendously expanded the very powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk now with a poem from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. 
she calls that called this poem Goldenrod. On roadsides, in small, in, I have to put my glasses on. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.